0: You hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Reverend Eric Alexander.
1: Chapter 31 of Isaiah, providentially as it happens, does quite remarkably gather together some of the great themes of the teaching of Isaiah that we have been taken up with from the beginning. One of the very best recent writers on Isaiah is a man called John Oswalt from the United States. And he says that the great question which is posed from Isaiah 7 right through to Isaiah 39 is, The question, whom shall God's people trust? Whom shall God's people trust? And he remarks that the great difference between various companies of God's people in history and companies of God's people in the contemporary world is determined by this question. Those whose confidence and trust is placed absolutely in God. That is, in the words of verse 1, who look to the Holy One of Israel and seek help from the Lord. And those whose secret confidence is somewhere else in the wisdom of men, in human resources, in material things, or whatever. Now, this is certainly what we have been found to be one of the main keynotes of the message God sent Isaiah to bear to Judah. Let me give you some random examples of that so that you can see it through the text. Indeed, it begins before chapter 7. For example, in chapter 2, at verse 22 Isaiah's plea at the end of that particular section is stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils of what account is he asks Isaiah chapter 8 verses 17 and 19 I'm going to be asking you to Look at various different places this evening So you will be kept awake at least looking through your Bible Chapter 8 verses 17 and 19 I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob I will put my trust in him Then, verse 19, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? In other words, why is it that we are not inquiring of God, drawing near to Him, looking to the Holy One of Israel, putting our trust in the Lord? Chapter 10, verse 20, the same note. In that day, now this is the day of grace, the day of God's coming and blessing upon them. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, what will they be marked by? What is the great mark of the remnant of God's people? The survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So it goes on through the whole of this section. Chapter 20, verses 5 to 6. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt, will be afraid and put to shame. In that day, the people who live on this coast will say, see what has happened to those we relied on, those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria. See what has happened to those we relied on. The people who live in that way will be put to shame. Two more, chapter 25, verse 9. In that day, the day of the triumph of God's people, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The language of God's people, do you notice, is we trusted in him. Chapter 30, the chapter we read last week, verses 1 and 2. Woe to the obstinate children declares the Lord to those who carry out plans that are not mine forming an alliance but not by my spirit heaping sin upon sin who go down to Egypt without consulting me who look for help to Pharaoh's protection to Egypt's shade for refuge. That is instead of trusting the Lord They have gone to Egypt for protection. Now that's the theme which is taken up again in chapter 31, right at the beginning, in verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One, Of Israel Of course going down to Egypt For help Was almost a constitutional failure of God's people Ever since Abraham did it Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12 When he discovered that there was famine in the land And he was unable to trust God Any longer in days of adversity When all the things that had made life comfortable Were removed When all his own plans seemed to have been smashed And God was trusting him with days of wilderness, famine, lack And Abraham turned aside from God's way and went down to Egypt Now that happened again and again in the history of God's people Even when he brought them up out of Egypt at the Exodus when God led them on the way to a new land that was going to be overflowing with his grace for them, they suddenly decided that they would rather go back to Egypt and live there. They said it were better for us in the land of Egypt. Going down to Egypt became a kind of constitutional failure for them. And their was something of the draw of this land of plenty, where they were tempted to put their trust. You find it happening right through. It's an interesting study through the history of Israel. Solomon did the same thing when he cemented an alliance with Pharaoh by marrying his daughter, So it's not surprising to read at the beginning of chapter 31 Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help because Egypt stood for everything that was separated from the promises and the riches and the grace of God and God's people again and again went down to Egypt for help They are of course in so many ways still doing it It is still something that lies deep in our hearts Now it's a significant thing to read on in Isaiah 31 Isaiah's elaboration of what going down to Egypt implied What exactly was it that they were relying on? Well you'll notice he says they were relying on horses And trusting in chariots Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots Now, horses and chariots were part of the basic weaponry of Egypt The Egyptians were probably at the forefront of developing warfare through cavalry and charioteers And of course in Egypt it worked brilliantly Egypt became known as the country which was full of horses and chariots with brilliant horsemen and people who drove their chariots, defeating enemy after enemy. But the reason was that Egypt was a flat country, and horses and chariots were absolutely ideal there. The extraordinary thing is that Judah was a hilly country. And you can imagine how ludicrous chariots were there. This is part of the reason that it was so stupid for Judah to put their confidence in the things that Egypt had and could give to them because they were totally inappropriate for the people of God. In fact, rather interestingly, later on in chapter 36, verses 8 and 9, you'll find that one of the Syrian leaders, um, the field commander, uh, tells Hezekiah in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 36, come now make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. In other words, do you notice what he is saying is, what use are they going to be for you? You are not that kind of people. It's rather like some primitive country wanting an atomic war weapon which they could not begin to understand how to use. And they were putting their confidence, therefore, not only in something that God had not led them into, but into something which was absolutely and incredibly stupid. And the people of Israel were foolish as they listened to the counsel of some who urged them not to look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord, but to put their trust in horses and rely on the multitude of their chariots. It was a particular folly... Which is taken up again and again in scripture in the Psalms, for example. Do you know that marvelous verse in Psalm 20, verse 7? Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, this is the distinctive of the people of God. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now Isaiah's message is very simple really. A. It is wise to trust in the Lord and to live your life on that basis. B. It is foolish to trust in the flesh and to live your life on that basis. Now this dual message Is really the message of chapter 31 It is wise to trust in the Lord And to allow that principle to dictate The whole of the way you live and think And set your priorities And order your days Secondly it is foolish And history, the history of God's people Down through the years has proved it again and again To put your confidence in man or in the flesh, and to live your life on that basis. Now, he gives us two reasons, and the reasons are first, the frailty of men, and secondly, the greatness of God. Let's just look at um, how Isaiah works this out. The introduction is in verse 1 Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord Now the reason it is wisdom to trust the Lord and foolishness to trust in the flesh is first of all the frailty of men Notice how he summarizes that in verse 3, the Egyptians are men and not God, their horses are flesh and not spirit. Now flesh really doesn't carry the sinful implications that flesh has in the New Testament where in Galatians 5, Paul speaks about the works of the flesh. It's just man left to himself. It is man in his finite, mortal, weak state. And Scripture constantly reminds us that flesh, mortal, finite man is neither to be an object of trust or of fear for God's people. And both of these things are of immense importance. We are not to trust the flesh in the sense that the hymn means when it says the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. And on the one hand... We are not to trust the flesh. On the other hand, we are not to fear what mere mortal man can do for the simple reason of the frailty of man before God. Now, turn back with me to Psalm 56 and verses 4. And 11. Well, let's say verse 3, or verse 1, Psalm 56 at the beginning. Be merciful to me, O God. For men hotly pursue me All day long they press their attack My slanderers pursue me all day long Many are attacking me in their pride That's the psalmist's position, you see He experiences mortal men attacking him Slandering him, pressurizing him He experiences what it is to be in the midst of pressure And he is afraid And then in verse 3 he says When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Now, do you see this dual argument that the scripture brings before us? Because of man's frailty and mortal weakness, he is not a safe object of trust. And on the other hand, when he becomes your enemy, he is not an object of fear. So the fear of man which brings a snare is never to be part of the life of the believer. Because of his frailty and weakness. So Jesus says, do not fear those who have power to kill the body and when they have done so, that is all that they shall do. I will tell you who you shall fear, he says, fear God, him who has power after death to consign and condemn the body to hell. Now that is the great principle. Man, because of his frailty, Is not to be the object of our trust You get the same thing in Psalm 146 And verse 3 It's a theme that runs all the way through the Psalms But you will notice it in Psalm 146 verse 3 Do not put your trust in princes In mortal men who Cannot save. Now that's the same principle and it's enormously important, you know. The Egyptians, Isaiah is saying, are creatures. They are men, not God. They are limited by nature, not unlimited and supernatural. They are men, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. And it's an enormous importance to us to grasp that we dare not trust human flesh. I remember at a particularly important time of my own life reading part of Andrew Bonner's uh, life. You remember Andrew Bonner who wrote the memoir of Robert Murray McShane of Dundee. And Bonner ministered here in Glasgow, in Finiston. Do you know that church building, sort of uh, Greek façade on the outside, which has inscribed on Hebrew above it still, He who winneth souls is wise. And Andrew Bonner was one of the greatest winners of souls in the last century in this city and had a most extraordinary ministry. One of the really interesting things about uh, Andrew Bonner was that people gathered in vast multitudes, some of them from the very select uh, homes of Glasgow, some people from the lowest rungs of society, and they gathered together in Finiston Church, and God came down upon that place in mighty power. Many people were... Greatly indebted under God to Andrew Bonner's ministry And the result was in these strange days That you found masses of children called after him You know, So you got Andrew Bonner Smith, Andrew Bonner Brown, Andrew Bonner so and so And they all called their children Andrew Bonner Especially in in Finiston They used to say whenever there were baptisms It was 9 out of 10 It would be Andrew Bonner McGilligan or something like that Well Andrew Bonner died one day as mortal men do Of course, sometimes forget, but he did He died And uh, because it was such a big event There was a great placard on the news hoarding uh, On the street And uh, there was a man who had been converted under Bonner And had been blessed through his ministry Shepherded through his life And guided out of all kinds of disasters by Bonner And he went away into Kelvin Grove Park And he could scarcely walk And scarcely see for the anguish that he was in What on earth was he going to do if the truth were told He really had almost begun to worship the man And uh, in these days there were nannies in Glasgow I don't know if there are any nannies left in Glasgow But there were and they were wheeling their trams through Kelvin Grove Park and as he walked along, one of the nannies had a pram. There two children in it. One of them was uh, beginning to lean over and donk the other one and uh, was almost on top of it. And just as he was passing, he believed afterwards in the providence of God. The nanny reached forward and said to one of the children, Now don't you lean on Andrew Bonner. And the man walked on and thought that God had spoken to him that day And he went home and bowed before God and said The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord But it is in the Lord that I trust and on him that I lean Because you see, the simple truth is, whoever the man may be, we all of us, my brothers and sisters, we all of us at some stage are a disappointment to each other. Every idol has feet of clay. And the vital thing is that your trust is in the Lord and not in man. At every level of life that you care to apply that truth In every sphere that it's possible to apply it It's vital to apply it Put not your trust in princes Some trust in chariots, some in horses But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God Now it's because of the frailty That of man, that God presses upon Isaiah the folly of trusting in Egypt. The Egyptians are men, not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. But the second reason is the greatness of God. The frailty of man is the first great reason for not putting your trust in men but in God. And the other great reason, and the greater of course, is the surpassing greatness of God. Think, says Isaiah, of his wisdom for example. In verse 2. He is speaking about those who have trusted in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen who did not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet, verse 2, he says, He too is wise. Now that, of course, is really sarcasm. A jibe at those who had advised going down to Egypt for help. If you look back at chapter 5 of Isaiah and verse 21, You will notice the warning that he has given to those who uh, wanted to make their plans without God and called evil good and good evil. He says in 521, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And then again in chapter 19, he has the same concern. Chapter 19 at verse 11 The officials of Zoan are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh gave senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I'm one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? Where are your wise men now? That is the wisdom of the world, you see, has been brought to nothing by God. This is what Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The wisdom of God brings the wisdom of men down to nothing. Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt and so on. Now, says Isaiah, God is really quite wise too, you know. That's the sarcasm of verse 2. He knows how to throw human plans into chaos. And how to cause disaster. Indeed, it is with him that wisdom begins. Notice what he says in verse 2: Yet to, he too is wise and can bring disaster. Wisdom begins with God. That's one of the great lessons of Isaiah. Um, do you remember the same kind of sarcasm? In Job chapter 38, do you know Job 38? The first time God speaks in the book of Job, the Lord answered Job out of the storm. Now, you get this, of course, in in the books of wisdom. You notice how often, really interesting thing, how much of the Bible is taken up with this question of wisdom and folly. Wisdom in the Bible is not cleverness, and folly in the Bible is not being thick. Wisdom in the Bible is fearing the Lord. Folly in the Bible is failing to fear the Lord and fearing anything else before the Lord. But notice how God comes to Job. In chapter 38, the Lord answered him out of the storm and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. Now here is God beginning to catechize Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? That's a great question, isn't it? He says, when I laid the foundations of the world, where were you incidentally? I didn't see you around at that time, Job, he says. Nor any of your wise counselors who are explaining all this that's happening. I didn't happen to see you when I was laying the foundations of the world. Tell me if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstones? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors? And so he goes on to ask Job all these questions. Where were you, he says, when all this was happening? And the question, of course, again, is one of irony and sarcasm. And Isaiah is using the same figure. He too is wise, he says. Wisdom begins with God. And it begins with fearing him. That is, with obeying him. And trusting him. Secondly, think of his faithfulness, says Isaiah. Second phrase of verse 2. He does not take back his words. That is, he means exactly what he says. He will fulfill his promises and his threats. So think of his faithfulness. He never, never utters an idle word, unlike men and women. You know... The princes of these foreign nations in whom Judah was so inclined to trust, they would utter threats in all directions, fume and steam. But they would go back on their words, just as people do today, you know, in so many senses. But God never, ever goes back on his word. Therefore, we are to trust him, not only because he is perfect wisdom, but because he's perfectly reliable. Where do you find somebody in the world, in Isaiah's day or hours, who is perfectly reliable? That is, you can trust them everywhere and every moment. You never find a flaw in their character. God is like that. That's why it's so stupid not to trust Him. Think of His power, Isaiah says in verse 3. Well, look at verse 2, he will rise up against the house of the wicked, against those who help evil doers. But notice, the Egyptians, verse 3, are men and not God, their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, all he has to do, in other words, is just to stretch his hand out, then he who helps will stumble, that's the Egyptians, and he who is helped, that's the Judeans, will fall. Both will perish together this is what the Lord says to me says Isaiah now you'll notice in verses 4 and 5 how the power of God makes him a total terror to his foes and a total protection to his own people notice these two beautiful figures did you get them when we were reading it through the lion and the bird now If you think of it, C.S. Lewis incidentally has got hold of this better than anybody when in his Narnia books, you know, he has got the lion who roars through Narnia and the voice of the lion makes everybody tremble. Now listen to what Isaiah says about the lion. Somebody told me, rightly or wrongly, this was where the Narnia idea of the lion was born. I don't know. This is what the Lord says to me, verse 4, As a lion growls, a great lion, over his prey. And you'll get the picture. The lion has got some prey and is about... To consume it And though a whole band of shepherds Is called together against him He is not frightened by their shouts Or disturbed by their clamor You can imagine the lion and all the shepherds Puny in their weakness by comparison They gather around, make a noise Beat with their sticks They're wanting the lion to let the prey go But the lion is not interested in them really They come near to him And another growl And they've run back home And it's this picture of God like that, you see. God in his mighty power. And he is a cause of fear. He is the only one that we ought to fear. Fear God, ye saints, and you shall then have nothing else to fear, because he is like the lion. But you know, the same power, Isaiah says, protects his own like a bird protects his young. It's more accurately her young, isn't it? Now listen to this, verse 5. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. I think it's Calvin who says that you know what the bird does when it's hovering over the nest and a bird of prey is coming down to seek the young. The bird will offer itself up as a sacrifice instead of the young. Now, I don't know whether Calvin was an ornithologist or what. I'm not, but... uh, It's a beautiful idea if it's true. And there is something lodged in that picture that would be quite wonderful for what Isaiah is going on in the later chapters to tell us about the Lord coming to take the place of his people. But he says he will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. Now... That total protection means that the Lord alone is the one to be trusted. And he is sufficient to deal with Egypt And with Assyria Verses 8 and 9 Assyria will fall by a sword that is not of man A sword not of mortals will devour them They will flee before the sword And their young men will be put to forced labor Their stronghold will fall because of terror At the sight of the battle standard Their commanders will panic Declares the Lord Who is fire in Zion And furnace in Jerusalem In other words he is going to come and burn them up now that's reckoned to be a description of the fall of Assyria under the time of Sennacherib and uh, God overwhelmed his power which Judah feared so the great reasons that we are not to trust man but to trust the Lord is the frailty of man And the greatness of God, great in wisdom, great in faithfulness, great in power, both to judge and to save. So what's the appeal? Well, it's the appeal right in the middle of this chapter in verses 6 and 7 which Isaiah repeats again and again and again here is the story of God's people in three words and you can notice that um, Isaiah has had an alliterative turn at this point the first word is revolt return to him you have so greatly revolted against O Israelites now that is man's condition By nature, it is the tendency of the human heart that we revolt against the Lord and His grace and sovereignty and His lordship over our lives. Israel did that again and again. They revolted against the Lord. So Isaiah's plea is... Because having revolted against the Lord, they had turned to idols. And that's an important principle. You will realize that when a man revolts against the Lord, he does not become godless. He transfers his allegiance to another God. And that's always so. The shabbiest alternative To the Holy One of Israel Is just a great big capital I But there are all sorts of other gods Idols that we put in his place Isaiah speaks about them in verse 7 In that day every one of you will reject The idols of silver and gold And there's the second word Revolt is the first Reject is the second You will reject the idols of silver and gold Your sinful hands have made You have revolted against the Lord The answer to that revolt is a rejection of the idols That is biblical repentance of course it is a turning from them, a putting away of idols from us. And that's a deliberate, decisive thing that Isaiah is calling God's people to. He says, face the fact that you have revolted against the Holy One of Israel. Reject the alternatives you've raised up to Him. And then the third word at the beginning of verse 6 return to him. So there is a revolt, there is a rejection, and there is a return. Return to him you have so greatly revolted against. And you cannot avoid the picture here in Isaiah 31 and throughout the whole of the prophecy of God waiting of God hovering like a protective bird over his own people so that he might keep them for himself. And yet they have rebelled against him and turned from his ways and preferred other gods. And Isaiah says, return. Return to him. And trust him. It's that appeal that runs the whole way through the prophecy. Right to the very end. And we will find it coming again and again and again. Return to the Lord. Even in Babylon. When they were saved. Till rebelling in spirit against the Lord and God Had fulfilled the promise they didn't think he would ever keep And led them into exile Even there they heard his voice one day saying Return, return to me And in Nehemiah's day They trudged their way back to Jerusalem the glorious thing is that that can be our personal history too let's pray together our blessed Lord we thank you with all our heart for your holy word thank you for its authority and authenticity thank you most of all for its relevance to our own lives and. This very day in which we live Thank you that you come to us As the God of such an infinite Overwhelming grace In your word How amazing that you are still Pleading with us Even though we have turned Every one to his own way We bless you That you are the God Who has called us Return unto me And I will return unto you Lord, by your grace, help us that we may learn some of these lessons from you and that we may become a people whose help is in the name of the Lord and whose hope is in you. To this end, may your grace and mercy and peace abide with us and with all God's people this night and forevermore.
0: You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and hear the Word of God.